Life isn't about avoiding the bruises. It's about collecting the scars to prove that we showed up for it. Join Nikki Seberini for the next hour as she explores heroism through illness. There is a warrior inside each of us. This is LifeLinks with the DL Link. LifeLinks is a funding initiative of the DL Link. Karen is an associate professor of psychology in the School of Human and Community Development um, at the University of the Vidvatisrand. And uh, Judith is a clinical psychologist um, in private practice. And they have uh, put their very bright brains together and written a book called Beyond Tea and Tissues. And we're going to be talking more about that. So um, Karen and Judith, welcome. So lovely to have you both on the show. Thank you. Lovely Thanks to be very here. Much. Oh, lovely, lovely to have you on the show. So I- I'm going to start off with you, Karen, just asking you about how a, um, a, an organizational psychologist gets together um, with a, a clinical psychologist and, and why? What, what was the purpose behind it? Thanks, Nikki. Thanks very much. It's a great question. So I've worked in the field of organizational well-being for many, many years. Um, and I'm going to tell you a bit of a story because I think it answers your question about the title of the book to start off with. So the title of the book Fabulous. is Beyond Tea and Tissues. Um, because many years ago when I was working, um, doing some consulting in an organization, I bumped into an HR manager who had just walked out of her office and she looked very upset and very distressed. And I said to her, what's the matter? And she said she'd had someone in her office who was very, very depressed, who was crying, who was very anxious. Um, and she said to me, Karen, I didn't know what to do. All I had to offer her was tea and tissues. And I wish I had more to offer her. And that story stayed with me for a very long time. Um, that we should be able to offer people in organizations who are distressed more than just tea and tissues. So that was the title of the book, and it's something that stayed in my mind for ages. Then by chance, I bumped into Judith Enser in the parking lot of King David Victory Park, and we knew each other from years back, and we started chatting. And once I started chatting to her and hearing more about her work, I realized that what had been missing and why I had never got this book together is organizational psychologists look at organizations from a particular perspective, from the organizational side, what the organization can do. And clinical psychologists understand the area of mental health very much from an individual perspective. And it was absolutely essential that if we're going to deal with mental health at work, we need to bring those two perspectives together. Uh, Judith can talk perhaps if she wants to about her work also at ICAS, but she was an ideal person who, um, as a incredibly well-respected psychologist, senior psychologist in the in, in South Africa, um, but also with an, a really compassionate um, and deep, deep understanding of issues of mental health. With my understanding of organizations, it seemed to be a really good combination and very necessary if we were going to address mental health at work. Mm, absolutely. Thanks, Karen. And interesting. Um, did you write this book during COVID? Um, because I mean, you, you, you launched it about what, six weeks ago. When did the writing take place? Well, let's so, take that one. So just to say, no, we did both. We were supposed to have it ready before COVID, um, but COVID actually facilitated us having a lot more time to spend not just drinking coffee and gossiping, but actually writing the book. So yeah. COVID helped us finish. So, so Judith, I mean, it's quite a frightening statistic. One in four individuals experiences some form 
of mental illness. Um, and yet there's still such a stigma attached to it. Um, I remember years ago interviewing someone when we spoke about mental health and this doctor said, amazingly, you know, if someone's diagnosed with diabetes, there's never a resistance to going on medication or sharing the information. But when it comes to mental illness, there is this resistance. Maybe you can speak to that. Um, uh, you know, I know that, that Karen will, will certainly identify that in the workplace, but just in general, what, what is the stigma around mental illness? So, I mean, mental illness, of course, has been stigmatized for centuries and misunderstood, but I think it's largely seen and misunderstood as weakness. So often people um, carry the idea that, you know, if people were stronger and more resilient, they could just get over it. They could pull themselves together. And people misunderstand the nature of mental illness and pathologize and stigmatize it. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to talk a little bit more about that, um, Judith, just finding out the difference between mental illness and, and psychological disturbances. But we'll, we'll carry on with that after the break. Please stay with us. Life isn't about avoiding the bruises. It's about collecting the scars to prove that we showed up for it. Join Nikki Seberini for the next hour as she explores heroism through illness. There is a warrior inside each of us. This is LifeLinks with the DL Link. LifeLinks is a funding initiative of the DL Link. Welcome back to the DL Link Show, where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. Nikki Seberini here, and I have two guests uh, talking about their new book, Beyond Tissue, Beyond Tea and Tissues. Uh, professor Karen Milner, who's an associate professor of psychology in the School of Human and Community Development at the University of the Witwatersrand, and uh, Judith Anser, who is uh, a clinical psychologist in private practice, and uh, they've collectively written this book. Um, for um, the protecting and promoting of mental health at work, um, Karen just outlining why it, it, the title is beyond tissue, uh, tea and tissues, and really how to how to approach people who have um, and to deal with people who are suffering with mental illness in the workplace. And just before the break, um, Judith, I, I I kind of hinted at the difference between mental illness and psychological disturbances, um, and and whether that's even important in the workplace. Absolutely. One of the things we try to make very clear in the book is that firstly, it's not, there's not a clear dividing line between when somebody has a mental illness and when they have psychological distress. And it's useful to think about our vulnerability as all human beings to struggling psychologically. And I think part of what the stigma that I alluded to earlier is about is about people's anxiety about their vulnerability and, a, and an attempt to deny personal vulnerability. So if we think of mental illness as something that happens to other people out there, to crazy um, kind of people, and we have all the stereotypes and ter- terrible, terrible stereotypes about that, then we can distance ourselves. But the truth is, all of us is vulnerable to feeling at times different forms of psychological distress. And that's what we pointed out in the book is that mental health is not simply um, the absence of illness. It's about dealing with all the factors that contribute to wellness. But psychological distress can come out of a genetic vulnerability to a mental illness or psychiatric illness. It can, can also be the result of life circumstances. And one of our chapters is when bad things happen. And to think about um, how life can 
presents such challenges. And COVID, of course, being a classic one, you know, that none of us could have anticipated the impact of lockdown and of the kind of devastation of an illness that is really unpredictable. And and one can't say that, you know, you're psychiatrically ill if you're anxious about COVID and its impact. But that is a form of psychological distress and, of course, has major implications for functioning in terms of relationships and, of course, in terms of the workplace. And so many subtleties around that, I'm sure, Judith, because, you 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 know, are you looking at very obvious symptoms? Is it just slight change in behavior? Um, you know, is it personal coming into the workspace? You just mentioned COVID, a lot of anxiety around that. And the anxiety just working online all day. Um, all of a sudden, you, you're in front of a computer for that much longer. So there's so many so many variables um, at play. Um, and, and so I'm going to move to you, Karen, because I don't know if there are any uh, workplace um, procedures or policies in place dealing with people who are suffering with mental illness. Are there any or is it really just left up to HR um, as to how they would handle these kind of difficulties or challenges? So it depends on the workplace. Most organizations or certainly large organizations would have a policy relating to chronic illness, for example example and something like um, depression may will often fall as a chronic can fall or can be seen as a chronic illness in the workplace and will have a policy in relation to that so I think that and and there are also certain labor legislation guidelines which tell people how to that how they have to address and accommodate people with any form of disability including a mental disability, which can include a psychiatric illness or mental illness. That's at the kind of diagnostic end of the mental health continuum, if I can call it this, that when you've been diagnosed with a particular mental health problem. What we deal with even more in the workplace, though, is a much wider range of stress, anxiety, depression, those kind of things, which don't necessarily sit at a point at which you would be um, necessarily diagnosed, but which impact on your productivity and impact on your health and impact on your general wellness and, and happiness. And organizations often do address the stress element, but what I make a point of importantly um, in the book, and, and this is a key point I want to make now, is that you can address stress at various levels. And organizations often have policies and procedures to address stress once it's become problematic and at a level which makes it the problem of the individual. But what I think is very important is that organizations are often the cause of that stress. And if you want to deal with with depression and anxiety at work in a stressful environment, they need to place more effort on removing the stressors or the causes of stress from that environment. So toxic environment, bullying, lack of control, um, lack of connection, lack of feeling valued, all of those contribute to people's stress and providing a massage on a, on a Monday afternoon. Um, it's, I'm not knocking that, but the better option would actually be where possible to remove the sources of stress, anxiety and if we had to bring this closer to what we cover, Karen, um, here we talk a lot about cancer with the DL Link show. Um, so we're talking about uh, someone who's being diagnosed with cancer, an employee, they're now going for treatment, they're facing this huge challenge, or perhaps a member of their family. Um, if something like that, Karen, I mean, are they protected within the workplace? How does, how, you know, it's private, it could be confidential if they are, they themselves going through the treatment. 
treatment? How were they supported taking time off? Do, do, do you cover that as well? So we don't cover it specifically, obviously, in relation to cancer. I think we do cover it in relation to when bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to leave, I'm going to, I'm going to talk very briefly on that and then pass it over to Judith because I think that's a classic example. Of, as Judith mentioned right in the beginning, sometimes there's an issue because you're gen- genetically disposed to it, and sometimes just something's happened to you in your life. You've been diagnosed with cancer or someone else has been diagnosed with cancer. And I'm going to leave it. I think Judith really deals with that very well, so I'm going to ask her to answer that question because it's precisely what I'm talking about. Over to you, Judith. Yes, so what we talk about in the book is we try and guide, um, obviously, managers, HR professionals, um, occupational health specialists, and um, obviously employees themselves who might be interested. We do try and offer guidance, and I think we do it quite well, um, to toot our own horn, um, to how to manage those kind of difficult conversations when you are um, trying to ask a workplace to accommodate some kind of difficulty. Of course, the onus is on the employee to inform the workplace. And we talk about the importance of confidentiality and trust, the idea of relational trust, that the employee has to trust the HR practitioner or the manager or whoever they speak to. Um, But obviously, the workplace can't guess that something's happening. They can't guess that somebody's got an ill family member or that they've been diagnosed with something. And the workplace can only be expected to make reasonable accommodations if they know what the difficulty is. And I understand that lots of people feel mistrust with, uh, you know, managers. They're suspicious of HR. And we do, we do try to address how to best manage those conversations. We've also got an appendix of very useful a chapter on incapacity and on what a reasonable accommodation is and what a person who's struggling with something, can expect from the workplace. But it is about like a kind of give and take. Often in some of our launches, people have said to us, you know, how do we manage the the feelings of the rest of the team when one person has taken time off for an illness or um, whether it's a psychiatric illness or the illness of a family member and they take time off and then the team has to pick up the slack. They have to do all the work. And then members of the team feel it's unfair and they feel aggrieved. How do we manage that? And Karen often uses the analogy as if somebody breaks their leg at work, when they come back to work with their broken leg, we expect the team to accommodate that they can't necessarily get up the stairs and that will move the meeting downstairs. But often people don't see that with the so-called hidden disabilities. And often those are like chronic illnesses um, and, of course, psychiatric or psychological difficulties. Mm. And, and obviously it's a process. And, and, you know, one of the things with COVID, the big cliche is that after COVID, there's going to be the second pandemic is going to be the mental illness or the depression and anxiety pandemic. And we are seeing rises in rates, especially of anxiety. And I think that one of the things is what we hope is that this will sensitize the workplace and the community at large not to de- not to stigmatize psychiatric illness and to provide strategies. Of course, the other challenge is the financing and resourcing of those kind of processes and programs. 
Yeah, I think that would be a huge challenge. And I love that analogy with the the broken leg. I I suppose it is so much easier when you see something that's physical. You know, the leg is broken. We can operate or we can do whatever it has, whatever has to be done. And and it's there. It's the leg. And when it comes to someone, you you mentioned um, uh, losing a family member and then the rest of the team responding. I I suppose, Judith, when it comes to psychological issues, they also triggers. It it can, can, can trigger something within one which which could be difficult to approach someone else's difficulties do you you, is that possible of course you know other people's vulnerabilities can make us feel so anxious and and sometimes and we also address this the impulse might be to rescue and to try and fix everything for that person and that can actually sometimes backfire and cause more resentment among members of a team But of course, the other thing can happen, I think the opposite is we see someone's vulnerability. It makes us frightened because we don't want to own our own vulnerability. So we withdraw and judge the other person. And often we see this, you know, I'm sure you in in your work with people who have cancer is that some people will be incredibly supportive of the person with the diagnosis. But there's some people who will like withdraw, avoid, back away and abandon the person because of what it triggers in in the other person that triggers their own fear and anxiety. Mm. So this is quite, I mean, it's, it's a huge area and I suppose lots of a, a gray area when it comes to that. So if, if I can use that term. So Karen, let me ask you then, and um, what kind of interventions you spoke about a, a massage or a, you know, these wellness days and the wellness days are absolutely fantastic. And I know that you address a lot of this in the book, but for our listeners just listening, how in terms of an intervention with working with teams and working with groups, how do you get groups of people to open up, um, to express their frustration if someone hasn't been at work because of an illness or because of grievances? How, how, what, what is the best approach to that? I don't think that there's a single once-off intervention that I can propose when you say that. For me, it's part of the leadership role. And the leader in the team needs to own it. Um, I think it's, and, and it's part of a process of trust as well. Leader can't come suddenly into a team and say, let's discuss this as, as if there's been no history and no culture. In the- if you have a culture in the organization where people are generally treat their issues are treated confidentially, their issues are treated with respect and dignity, and the whole issue of mental health or anything else is dealt with in general conversation in a way that is not mocking or suggests that people are malingering or something like that. That's how you build a culture, and that's what the leader needs to do, is to make sure that that culture of trust is built so that when something like this arises, it becomes a much easier conversation to have. I often advise leaders to reflect a little bit. They they need to contain themselves. They can't, but a little bit on their own vulnerability sometimes helps people to become open about their vulnerabilities because the stigma's worse at work because it's not only about stigma, but it's a genuine fear that if I admit to some kind of weakness, as Judith said right at the beginning, that mental uh, problems often are associated with, that's going to prevent my career from advancing. So mm-hmm. you've got to stop that fear right at the outset and those kind of preconceptions that are wrong before people can admit to those kind of vulnerabilities at work. So there's not a one, we've got to build a culture 
where mental health is taken seriously, where leaders own the fact that they need to take some responsibility, not all, not all, but some responsibility for the conditions that they create, which will enable and allow people to reach out and talk about it. So I think that's a key message. Yeah, and it's such an important topic. And um, as uh, Judith said, um, you know, oh, when we get come through the COVID, um, having to look at how people are dealing with the mental health and uh, with psychological distress, you know, the aftermath of COVID. So this is such an important book, Beyond Tea and Tissues, and um, it's an actionable handbook. And so if you are in the workplace, um, Judith mentioned managers, health specialists, people in HR. Um, this book covers issues like understanding the role of the manager or HR practitioner with mental health problems, cultural issues to consider um, when managing mental health at work, identifying and managing personality, mood and anxiety disorders in the workplace, best practices for tackling workplace bullying or violence prone people at work, recognizing and assisting employees with um, addiction problems, helping employees work through difficult life experiences, practical strategies for managing a mental health crisis at work, early warning signs of mental health difficulties, what to do if you suspect something is wrong, what not to do after a mental health crisis, and more. Um, I hope this book is going to land on many a HR desk. Um, and I thank you both so much for putting together a really important book and for taking time out to share some of um, your ideas um, with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much, Nikki. Thank you.